Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Well, I'm glad you're here because what a mess it is out there and cold and wet. And it would have been easy for you to just say, you know, this is going to be too much to get out and uh, get over to Southeastern. But I'm glad you came. Uh, It would have been worth it for you to be here uh, to hear the great music and to hear Matt Chandler just speak from his heart about what God is teaching him. And uh, I'm 53 years old, and I'm learning a ton from a 35-year-old brother uh, who is walking through very deep waters in a very deep valley and is doing so for the glory of God and with amazing grace. And I'm learning from him, and he is teaching me about what really matters and how to keep life in perspective. He talks about wanting to walk his uh, daughter down the aisle when she gets married and doesn't know if God's going to allow him to do that. And yet God in his amazing grace allowed me to perform three weddings already for three of my sons and to be blessed now with six grandchildren. And so I, uh, I'm amazed at God's goodness and Matt's helping me keep things in, in right perspective. He also could not have laid the foundation any better for what I want to do tonight. I want you to take your Bible and join me in the book of Romans, the 12th chapter, Romans chapter 1 and 2. And if you would, just have as a a footnote before that text, this single verse in John's gospel, chapter 14 and verse 15, where Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, Keep my commandments. And then listen to what Paul has to say to us this evening from Romans chapter 12, beginning with verse 1 and going simply through verse 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves, your bodies, a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. By the renewing of your mind that you may prove, and it has the idea of of proving something by putting it to the test. In other words, put to the test uh, that good, that acceptable, and that perfect will of God. In other words, uh, consecrate yourself to the Lord. In the process, let Him transform you by making new day in and day out your mind. And then put it to the test and see if you don't discover that God's will is three things. It is good, it is acceptable, and it is perfect. I want to begin tonight by reading a couple of statements from some believers that I hope will kind of lay the foundation for where I want to go today. Um, They come from different backgrounds, some uh, incredible theologians, uh, some um, very brilliant philosophers, uh, others, uh, uh, missionaries who were martyred, and one, a 17-year-old girl whose life was snuffed out by a maniac at Columbine High School just a little over a decade ago. I want to start with her because this is, again, a remarkable individual, Cassie Bernal, who did not walk with the Lord in her early teen years. In fact, if you read her little book that her mother wrote, she said, Jess, you discovered that she actually went through a stage of very serious rebellion. And they were just not sure what they were going to be able to do with their daughter. And then she met the Lord Jesus and was radically transformed. And after her murder, after her martyrdom, after her death... Uh, They went back and found some letters. They they found her diary. And they found some very interesting things that a 17-year-old girl said about her relationship with Jesus. Listen to this that they found in her diary. Now I have given up on everything else. 
I have found it to be the only way to really know Christ and to experience the mighty power that brought him back to life again and to find out what it really means to suffer and to die with him. It's pretty profound given what took place in her life just a year later. A letter that she wrote to a friend less than a year before she died. I am so thankful for everything God's done for me as well as for others. Even when things are bad, he has stood next to me and things are a little less prone to becoming blown out of proportion by my emotions. You know, I wonder, what is God going to do with my life like my purpose? Some people become missionaries in things, but what about me? What does God have in store for me? Where do my talents and gifts lie for now? I'll just take it day by day. I'm confident that I'll know someday. Maybe I'll look back at my life and think, oh, so that was it. Isn't it amazing this plan we are a part of? How could she have known that she would look back over that brief 17 years and understand her purpose in God's plan, not from down here, but from up there in heaven. And then one last statement from Cassie found in her diary. When God doesn't want me to do something, I definitely know it. When he wants me to do something, even if it means going outside my comfort zone, I know that too. I feel pushed in the direction I need to go. I try to stand up for my faith at school. It can be discouraging, but it can also be rewarding. And then she said this. I will die for my God. I will die for my faith. It is the least I can do for Christ dying for me. And brothers and sisters, she kept her word. Jim Elliott, the great missionary to the Aka Indians, made a very famous statement in his journal that has inspired literally thousands to go to the mission field and to give their lives for King Jesus among the unreached peoples of the world. He simply said this, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Soren Kierkegaard. A Danish philosopher said this in his day back in the 1800s. There was a time when one could almost be afraid to call himself a disciple of Christ because it meant so much. Now one can do it with complete ease because it means next to nothing at all. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who was hanged by the Nazis after participating in an attempt to assassinate Adolf Hitler got this right, when Christ calls a man, he calls him to come and die. Now, I have a question I want to answer this evening. How is it that that men and women can have that kind of faith, can have that kind of perspective? How is it that they can indeed be willing to put it all on the line for King Jesus in such a radically devoted way that in many instances cost them their lives. I believe at least part of that answer can be found in the book of Romans in chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, because Romans 12, 1 and 2 uh, teaches us what is our proper response to the gospel. The thing that David articulated so well when he read Ephesians 2, 1 and following to us, what Matt talked about a moment ago, whether it be from the, the earthly perspective here on the ground where it's very personal or from above where you've got that cosmic picture of the grand redemptive storyline, what is to be the proper response to such this, to such a great, glorious, wonderful gospel? And if you take these two verses, I think you can answer the question uh, building your study around three words. And so if you're a note taker, here are the three words that you can build the study around this evening. Number one is the word consecration. Secondly is the word transformation. And thirdly is the word satisfaction. Consecration, which is the result of a transformation, which will end up in satisfaction. 
So how does he begin by talking to you and to me about this life of consecration that is the only reasonable response to the gospel? He tells you, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. He begins by saying, I beseech. You may have a translation that says, I I urge. Maybe you have one that says, I encourage. It's a word that has the idea of coming up to somebody, putting your arm around them, and encouraging them to go in a certain way. You're not in their face. Uh, You're not wagging your finger at them. You recognize that you are in this with them. And so you come up to them, you put your arm around them, and you encourage them. And so Paul wants to encourage you and me, as he was encouraging the Romans, to do a particular kind of thing, to live a particular kind of life. Our theme uh, these two days is a city within a city. But to have a city within a city... That looks distinctively different. That looks like the the heavenly Jerusalem. You have to have in that city a particular kind of citizen. And so if you want to know what a countercultural city will look like, well, you've got to look at the citizens who will occupy that city. And Romans 12, 1 and 2 gives you a portrait of what those individuals will look like. And so Paul says, come on. Let's be a part of this city within a city. Let's be a part of this counter-cultural movement that will cause a cynical, skeptical world to take notice of the distinctive difference that Jesus Christ and his gospel makes. And so he says, come on, let's go. I want to encourage you. And then he does something very interesting. He says, I want to do this by or based upon or grounded in the mercies of God. Now, what does Paul mean by the phrase, the mercies of God? I think the answer is this. Romans 1 through 11. Romans 1 through 11. Paul says, go back and look at Romans 1 through 11, and you will get a picture of the mercies of God that are the basis for me challenging you to present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. And so for just a moment... Uh, Let's do that. We won't take long, but take your Bible and go back with me for just a moment. And let's just note, how does Paul begin this letter? Well, if you want to catch the very essence and the theme of Romans, you find it in chapter 1, verse 16 and verse 17, where Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, the good news of Jesus, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Here's a, to quote Matt, here's the ground level picture to everyone who believes that gospel for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness, uh, a right standing with God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written. And he goes back and quotes Habakkuk 2, 4. By the way, this next statement appears four times in the Bible, in Habakkuk, in Romans, in Galatians, and in Hebrews. I think if God says something four times he kind of thinks it's important and so four times in the bible you read the phrase the just shall live by faith that's at the very core and heart of the gospel all right question why do we need a gospel why do we need the power of god Why do we need to be justified why do we need to be saved and the answer is we've got a massive sin problem In chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20. In other words, what you could say is Paul gives us his introduction in Romans 1, 1 through 17. Then in chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, he says, here's the problem. And in a nutshell, it's sin. In chapter 1, verse 18 through verse 32, he basically tells the Gentiles, you are hopelessly lost. God gave you his truth both in nature... And in conscience, there's none without excuse. People will often ask the question, Danny, what happens to the man in the innermost region of China or, or India, maybe one of those unreached people groups of millions that we know has no gospel witness, they've never heard the gospel, they've never heard the name of Jesus. What happens to people who die in that situation? And the Bible is very clear. They die and go to hell. They cannot be saved apart from the hearing of the gospel. That's why God calls out missionaries. 
That's why perhaps some of you have had a tug in your heart for some time now where you know God is not going to leave you here. But he wants you to go there to the masses of unreached people, 6,500 plus unreached people groups in the world today that have no opportunity to be saved, who have no gospel witness, and yet they are condemned both by creation, which they reject, by their conscience, which they turn in on, Romans 1, Romans 2. And so Paul says the Gentiles, they have no hope. In chapter 2, he also adds the, the Jews to it and says, fact of the matter is you Jews have got a greater responsibility because you are actually given the, the oracles of God as he moves into chapter 3 and explains that. In fact, let me just segue for a moment. Very important theological principle here. Listen to me. Revelation brings responsibility. The more you know, the greater your responsibility. In fact, let me just be plain. If you're here tonight just because you're, you're hanging with your friends or you came with your girl, but you really have no intention of being obedient to what you've heard preached already and what I'm preaching now, let me encourage you. You might not want to come back in the morning. You say, you're trying to scare some of us away. No, I'm actually trying to prevent you from incurring more judgment when you stand before a holy God. You see, the hottest places in hell will not be for those who never heard. But it'll be for the folks who lived in Raleigh and Atlanta and Birmingham and all these places where there's a ample opportunity to hear the gospel. And in many cases, you've heard the gospel and you've said no. And yours will be the greater judgment and the greater accountability when you stand before God in the judgment. He says in Romans 1, you've got creation. He says in Romans 2, you've got conscience. He says in Romans 3, many of you have got the very revelation of God so that, and this is so tragic, look at me now in chapter 3, verse 9. Here's the sum of his argument. What then? Are we better than they? And he gives you the answer, not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin as it is written. Now listen to this. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have all together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so he says, basically the whole world is dead and judged and under the wrath of God because of sin. But God, as David read a moment ago from Ephesians... But God steps in now in chapter 3, verse 21, through the uh, chapter 5, verse 21, verse 3. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there's no difference. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But verse 24, they're justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith. What's he saying? He's saying that the death you deserved and the wrath you deserved, Jesus took it. Jesus stepped in and took your place. He bore in his body the full, complete penalty of your sin. He bore in his body the wrath and the judgment and the condemnation of God that you might be justified in him by faith and receive the wonderful gift of eternal life. That's the gospel. Jesus taking what you deserved... And giving you what you don't deserve, he took your sin and he gave you his perfect righteousness. I think that's a pretty good deal. I think that's an awesome transaction. And you say, well, how does it happen? Chapter 4 tells you it's all by faith.
Chapter 5 tells you one of the results of it is you now have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And then you come to chapter 6, verse 1, through chapter 8, verse 39, where he discusses this doctrine of sanctification. And again, Matt nailed it. Justification comes first. Sanctification comes next. You have a right standing before God by faith, and then that wonderful, righteous standing begins to work itself out in a life that is being transformed by the gospel, transformed by the grace of God, so that, chapter 8, God is conforming you to the image of His Son. In fact, chapter 8, again, gets both the the bird's-eye view from 30,000 feet and the view on the ground. The bird's-eye view, creation is groaning. It cannot wait until God fully redeems His children because when we fully experience our glorification and we are conformed and made exactly like Jesus, creation is also going to be made brand new and we'll have that new heaven, that new earth, that new Jerusalem. And again, Paul says God in, uh, in Christ is changing you radically to make you like His Son. Then the question comes, well, how did all this happen? And Romans 9 through 11 basically says it is a sovereign, purposeful plan of God. Your salvation was not an accident. Your salvation was not an afterthought. Your salvation was not plan B. But God planned your and my redemption in eternity past. And as he promises to the Jews, so he promises to us, he is a God you can count on who will always keep his word. Therefore, verse 33 of chapter 11, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways, they are past finding out. Verse 34, who has known the mind of the Lord? The answer is no one. Or who has become his counselor? And the answer is, no one. Or who has first given to him, that is to God, and now God has to repay him to pay it back? And the answer is, no one. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Therefore, in light of all of this that God has done for you and me, Paul says, you know, I think I can come up beside you, put my arm around you, and now give you a challenge to begin to walk in a new kind of way. All right, Paul, what is that new kind of way based upon the gospel, standing in the gospel, standing in the righteousness of Christ that has been imputed to me that I do not deserve, but that I received as a free grace uh, gift by faith? What does that new life look like? Well, here we go. By the mercies of God. That you present your bodies. Let me begin to unwrap it very quickly. You present. This is a decision that only you can make, friend. I can't present for you. You can't present for me. If you are going to give yourself to Jesus as what he calls here a living sacrifice, that is a volitional choice, a volitional decision that you and only you can make for you. When you stand before God, he's not going to ask you about your granddaddy or your mom or your dad or your brother or your sister. I had a godly grandfather. I had a godly mother. Uh, He's not going to ask me about either one of them. He's, He's going to look Danny Aiken in the face and I will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for how faithfully I served my Savior in light of what he did for me in the gospel. You'll have the same day of reckoning. You present. Present what, Paul? Your bodies. Now, that's Paul's way of saying All of you. He tells in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God? You're not your own. For for you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God. Where, Paul? In your body. In other words, it's Paul's way of saying God wants your, your eyes. God wants your ears. God wants your mouth. God wants your mind. We'll get to that in a moment. God wants your hands and your feet. In fact, God wants all of your body, every single part of it. He's not interested in most of it. 
He's not willing to, to negotiate and, and bargain where you say, well, God, you know, I'll give you most of my eyes, but there are going to be those other occasions where when I go home tonight, I, I just, I can't help it, but I've got to get on the internet and I've got to get after the, the internet pornography that I have become addicted to. No. Every year I have friends that wind up leaving the ministry because of pornography, because of that addiction. I've got friends that started off with pornography and then moved to hardcore pornography. And then they themselves began to act out some of the things they were watching and became rapists, became sexual abusers. And today they're in prison. And it's very close to home. You see, as we're going to see in a moment, the mind is a very delicate thing that must be brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ or the devil will absolutely knock you flat and run over you. You can't give God part of you. God's not in the business of bargaining. In fact, he would kind of say it this way. I think I gave all that I could give when I gave my son. How dare you want to bargain with me and give me part of you? What kind of transaction, what kind of response of thanksgiving and gratitude and worship is that? The answer is, it's nothing. It's nothing. You present your bodies. How, Paul? A living sacrifice. And that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? If I were going to use a fancy word tonight, I would say that's what we would call an oxymoron. You say, well, it means it doesn't make sense. Living sacrifice. See, in the Bible, a sacrifice almost always is something that is killed. It's something that dies. So how can I, in presenting my body to Christ in response to the gospel, be both a living thing and a dead thing? Well, I, I think I've got it figured out. I think what Paul is saying is when you live out the gospel as this unique citizen within this city, within a city, you now, in your life, have some things that mean everything to you. You, you would sacrifice for them. You, you, you would die for them. There are other things that maybe at one time in your life just really meant a lot to you, but now for whatever reason, you, you've lost your appetite. You no longer have a fascination with them. You, you, you become dead to those kinds of things. Anyone that knows me knows that I am a, a big sports fan. I love football and basketball and, and baseball, and I'm kind of a, a, a schizophrenic because I've moved around living in Georgia and, and in Texas and in North Carolina, in uh, Kentucky, and now back in North Carolina. But it actually works out pretty good so that when it comes to college football, I, I can pull for the Georgia Bulldogs, as any righteous person would do. And um, uh, so I do do, do, do that, and, and I pray for God to slay all Florida fans. And No, I don't do that, but I, I, I'm not real happy with the Florida Gators. or, the, or Actually, I don't like anything in Orange. Florida, Auburn, Tennessee. Clemson doesn't bother me anymore. I mean, look at the team they have. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding, you Clemson. Just kidding. Just kidding. Y'all at least got in the championship game. We didn't. So I'm just picking at you, just playing with you. But So I pull for the Georgia Bulldogs. And then when it comes to NFL football, oh, my goodness, I can pull for the Cowboys. I can pull for Carolina. Uh, I can pull for the Colts. And I can always pull against the Redskins because they're an unregenerate team that has nothing to do with the things of God. And so I, I can pick my, my football teams like that. And, and then when it comes to basketball, uh, oh, my goodness, I can be both. A, a, a Tar Heel fan as well as a, a Wildcat fan and I still keep hoping that NC State somehow is going to come around someday and, and make my heart sore and I like any righteous person hates the Duke Blue Devils with a passion and so you know I, I can bring all that together too and so you're kind of getting the picture that, that yeah this man like, likes his sports so I like my sports and so when I was in high school, I played football, basketball, baseball my best sport was baseball I was a pitcher, three years, lost one game just one in three years uh, but I was not walking with the Lord, and uh, my senior year, even though I only lost one game in three years, was a disaster. Just a disaster. And then as I was getting ready to go to college, I had worked out an opportunity to walk on. I lost all scholarship opportunities because my senior year was such a bust. It, just, it was amazing what a disaster it was. 
And as I was getting ready to walk on, I was out with a friend one day who happened to be a three-time All-American at West Georgia. was a second-round draft choice with the uh, San Diego Padres, played Major League Baseball for eight years. And while we were out there and I was pitching and he was batting, he hit a line drive back at me and hit me in the groin area, dropped me to my knees, broke into cold sweat, began to throw up gastric juice, swelled up rather, rather large down there, and spent a month on my back in bed. God was trying to get my attention. And, and by the way, the, the, he, he succeeded. He, 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 he did. He, 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 he succeeded. I think he'd probably get your attention, too, if he did all that to you. And by the way, it's just a reminder that Hebrews 12 is like really true. The Lord disciplines those he loves. And, you know, he'll start off gentle, but if you don't get it, he can get tough. And, boy, he got tough with me. And so as a result of that, uh, my, my baseball uh, career in college was put on hold. And the next thing you know, out of some sense of desperation, uh, I kind of turned back to the Lord. And, lo and behold, I discovered that his arms are open wide to receive me back. I had cursed his name as a high school uh, student. Uh, nobody knew that I was a, a Christian when I was in high school. In fact, I can remember the one time I remember Jesus' name being mentioned in my high school during my three years in high school. We were having lunch. One of my friends who was a strong believer uh, mentioned to us that they were having a revival at his church. And he invited uh, his friends, of which I was one, to come. And when he mentioned that without thinking, without scoping things out, I said, well, you know, Gary, I'm a Christian, too. And one of my best friends sitting beside me started laughing and said, you're no more a blankety blank, blank, blank Christian than am I. And you know what I did? I laughed too. And just pushed it off and in essence denied my Lord. So I cursed him, I denied him, but he never gave up on me. And so all of a sudden he's got a hold of my life and on a mission trip, to the Papago Indian Reservation in Sales, Arizona in 1977 on a Monday night service, I sensed as clearly as anything I've ever sensed in my life that the Lord was calling me into the ministry. And all of a sudden, all these things that at one time, especially in the world sports, was my God. Athletics, there were my idols. And I still can enjoy them, but I have to tell you, they have nothing at all of the attraction that they once had. In fact, when everything is said and done, I, I'm dead to all of that. And many other things like a, a filthy mouth and an impure thought life and a temper that could easily get out of control and a sharp tongue that could slice and dice and just do such harsh, cruel things so quickly and walk away smug about how I put them in their place and laid them out and never gave a second thought to the hurt or the pain or the sorrow I brought to their heart and brought to their life. And God just took all of that away. And now all of a sudden, as I said to some friends the other day, at this particular point in time in my life, I fell madly in love with Jesus and Thirty-three years later, I still haven't gotten over it. And I would rather die than disappoint him. I would rather die than do something that brings dishonor to his name. Why do I do, do, I do these things? Because, because I have to. I do these things because I want to. I do these things because I am now a living sacrifice presented to him for him to use in any way that he sees fit. And so Paul can say to all of us, you can now, as you give yourself to God in this way, you die to these things so that you become alive to these things. And here's what's so neat about you giving yourself to God in this living sacrifice kind of a way. He says it's a holy thing to do. That is, you are now set apart, not for your life, but for God's life in and through you. You now are living a life that is acceptable to God. And then Paul says this very interesting thing. He says, this is your reasonable. The, the New King James says you could also say rational. You may have a translation that says spiritual. All those words kind of catch the nuance of what he's saying. It's a, it's a liturgical worship word that he uses there. But here we'll just follow the New King James, which is your reasonable service. In other words, Paul says, look. It's just the smart thing to do. It's just the rational thing to do. It's just the spiritual response to who God is and what God has done for you in Christ. To do anything less than that is insane. 
And I'll tell you, there's so many churches filled with spiritually insane people who are content with a comfortable, cultural Christianity that, if I just might be blunt, is not worth spit. And it certainly will not catch the attention of a culture that's cynical, skeptical, doesn't believe that our Jesus is real or that he really can make a difference in your life. And no wonder in America today, the church of the Lord Jesus in so many areas is weak, impotent, and ignored. A lot of times people say, oh, the the culture is really against us. No, the culture basically ignores us because we're not a threat. And I'm not talking about getting after right-wing politics. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about a distinctively, qualitatively different kind of life. A citizen of a different city that they just cannot explain away but recognize the incredible difference that you have going on in your life when it comes, for example, to your marriage, to your family, the way you treat your wife, the way you treat your children, the way your children respond to you, the way you treat people at work, the way you treat people in the ebb and flow of life, the way you spend your money, the way you downsize your lifestyle because you now have some things that you're living for that are of eternal significance, not just temporal significance. And they just step back and scratch their head and say, I can't explain that. And you can say, I can't either, apart from the gospel of God in the grace of Jesus Christ. And therefore, you have a life of consecration that makes you the kind of citizen of the city within a city that the lost world cannot explain away. So there's the first word, consecration. Now, secondly, the word transformation. Look at verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Paul, in verse 2, sets in contrast a negative idea and then a positive idea. The negative idea. Do not be conformed to this world. Now, let's work backwards. The word world there is not talking about God's good creation. It's not using the word cosmos, world, in that way. Um, it's not using the word world to talk about people. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. No, it's not using the word world like that either. Rather, he is using it here in a very theological sense to talk about an evil organized system that stands in opposition to God and everything that God wishes to accomplish. There, There is this unseen world that has this great army led by this horrible, horrible commander-in-chief called Satan. And he is very well organized. He is networked all over the world. And he is doing all that he can to bring harm and sorrow and opposition to the gospel. And he loves, he loves to do those things that demean the greatness of Jesus. He hates Jesus. He loathes our Savior. And so Paul says, now, Matt nailed it. Paul is writing in Romans 12, 1 and 2, to unbelievers or to believers. 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 And you say, Danny, a a, a believer is in danger of being conformed to this world? Absolutely. Absolutely. A lost person is a part of that world. You were too before you were saved. So was I. But now, he doesn't give up on you. In fact, if you are moving in a direction that draws you closer to Jesus, I can almost guarantee you he is intensifying his attack and his assault upon you. I mean, if you're not really walking with the Lord, you're no threat to anybody. But maybe you're here tonight and God has been doing some really cool stuff in your life recently. And maybe you really are thinking about some some radical alterations in terms of your future that, you know, the uh, that are not going to be applauded by everybody. But it's going to bring great glory to Jesus and it's going to be for the good of the nations. And all of a sudden you boy, man, some things are happening that, you know, I I would think things would just be great and wonderful. And yet they're not. 
I'm having issues with my girlfriend in terms of, of, of us maintaining the kind of purity that we know God requests before, before marriage. Maybe all of a sudden there's somebody that's come into your life and, boy, they are just working you over. Maybe you've got a boss and he is just, I mean, making it very difficult for you to maintain your witness and to maintain your integrity. And, you know, here's the deal, guys. If Satan cannot keep you from getting saved, he'll be glad to work on you to keep you from being effective when you're saved. And as a Christian, he doesn't stop his assault. I am convinced the more I study the Bible that, if anything, he intensifies that assault. And so the Bible says, don't be conformed to this world. The word conformed means to be squeezed, shaped, or molded. It has the idea of something coming from the outside that so puts pressure on you that it squeezes you and molds you and and, and shapes you so that you look like this thing that is putting pressure on you. What is putting pressure on us? The world. And the Bible says if you're not careful, both as a Christian and as a church, we can begin to look a whole lot more like the world than we look like Jesus. You say, my goodness, that's, that's, a, that's a real threat. It's a very real threat. It's a very present danger. How do I withstand that? Here's the positive idea. Be transformed. How, Paul? By the renewing of your mind. One of my heroes and one of my mentors in terms of writing is C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity made this very profound statement, and I quote, God is no fonder of intellectual slackers than any other slackers. If you are thinking of becoming a Christian, I warn you, you are embarking on something which is going to take the whole of you, brains and all. But unfortunately, it works the other way around. Anyone who is honestly trying to be a Christian will soon find his intelligence being sharpened. One of the reasons why it needs no special education to be a Christian is that Christianity is an education in itself. But Lewis points out that one of the keys to the Christian life is the the Christian mind. And Paul says you've got to be radically transformed. The word is related to our English word metamorphosis. It means to be radically altered, not by external pressure. The contrast is incredible. It is to be radically altered by the inside out. In other words, God is doing something on the inside that is changing you, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. And how does he do that? He does it by the renewing of your mind. Now, I could stay here a long time, but I'm not going to. Because this is a real, um, a real burden to me, a, a real passion of mine. You say, why? Because I just find that there's a whole bunch of stupid Christians out there. That's why. Just a bunch of really stupid saints. And, oh, they love Jesus with their heart, but they don't have a prayer of a chance of explaining to somebody either what they believe or why they believe. There's some of you that are in here today, uh, tonight, that go over to UNC. And you know that there are some people who at least at one time professed Christ, but now they've kind of walked away from the faith because there's some guys over there who believe nothing, but they got some really cute arguments that they throw out there, and they are so stupid and dumb and ill-prepared, they can't handle it, and so they walk away. And then there's some of you that just say, well, I just need to stay away because I won't be able to handle it. Why not? If it's true, it's true. If it's false, you ought to walk away. And if you don't think Christianity can withstand the fire of deep introspection, then you don't understand the Christian faith. Jesus said, you're to love me with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with what? All of your mind. So I want to challenge some of you tonight. Matt said, get in a Bible-believing church. Get in a gospel-centered church. Boy, I agree with that. Now let me add to that. Start reading some good Christian books. Start reading some theology. You say, you're just trying to buy, buy, sell, get the guests to buy your book. I don't give a rip if you buy my book or not. If you don't like Aiken Sismac theology, buy Grudem. Buy Erickson. I don't care. Buy something that will stretch your mind so that you can think more Christianly day in and day out rather than being just a surface, a sloppy, silly, stupid saint. We don't need any more. We don't need any more. So you hurt my feelings. Good. Good. 
Go do something about it. A couple of years ago, I was with a bunch of pastors. And I don't remember what happened, but something happened and I got kicked off. I'm sure it was a, a righteous provoking, but they kicked me off. And basically they were, they were fussing. I, I'll tell you what it was. They were fussing at the seminaries because they said, you seminaries are teaching too much Calvinism. And so as a result of that, we've got students coming back to our churches and they won't share their faith and they don't think we're preaching the gospel and they don't like the way we do church and we don't think we need to send our folks to your seminary anymore. So I said, well, okay. They, they actually were not talking about this one. They were talking about another one. But I have good friends there, and I took offense for that one, too. So I said, well, okay, let, let's, let's unwrap that. Okay, let's unwrap that. I said, um, first of all, most likely they did not get their extreme Calvinism. And that's what that is. If, if you don't share your faith, you're just disobedient. I don't care what kind of theological label you want to put in front of your name, okay? If you're a Calvinist, an Arminian, a Pelagian, an Amaraldian, or a Lunatician that doesn't share their faith... You're just not in God's will, okay? So I don't care. Any system of theology that lessens your passion for the Great Commission and evangelism is a theology not worth having. All right? Now, this is coming from someone that has a strong doctrine of sovereignty, a strong doctrine of providence. I believe Romans 8, 9, 10, and 11. I believe Ephesians 1. I believe 1 Peter 1. I believe that, okay? But anyway, I said most likely they didn't get it from the professors at the school. They got it from the little Calvinist ghetto where you got the little hyper-Calvinist dude sitting around, navel-gazing, and reading John Owen and not being of any good to anybody, okay? So that's, that's what you got going on, all right? That's what you got going on. And then they moved to John Gill and their DOA. They're useless after that, all right? They're, they're useless, all right? So I said that's the problem. But here's the other problem. You guys aren't doing, and I can't believe I did this. I didn't mean to come out, but you guys aren't doing your job. Now, that's not a thing for a guy to say to 50 pastors. But you guys aren't doing your job. I say, why don't you teach them when they're teenagers what Calvinism is? The strengths and the weaknesses, the pros and the cons. Why, why don't you introduce them to, to good, healthy Calvinists and then contrast them with the not-so-good Calvinists? And I say, why don't you teach them about Calvinism? Why don't you teach them apologetics? Why don't you teach them biblical criticism? Why don't you teach them the kind of things they're going to run into if they go to university, college, or to a seminary? Why don't you guys do your job? And needless to say, they did not rise up and call me blessed. In fact, I got pretty cold shoulders for the rest of the time. And I said, well, you shot your mouth off. You asked for it. You burned these bridges. You lost your friends. Okay. It's the way life works sometimes. About a year and three months later, I am with my... Uh, friend Johnny Hunt. How many of you know who Johnny Hunt is? Pastor, First Baptist Church Woodstock, great pastor, uh, wonderful godly man. And so I'm having lunch with him, and he says, uh, Brother Danny, I took you at your challenge. And I didn't know what he was talking about. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, you challenged us about teaching our kids theology. And I said, well, no, I don't think. He said, oh, yeah, you did. You, you laid us out. Made me mad. So you know what? We just got through with youth camp. And you know what I taught at youth camp all week? I said, no. Theology. I even took one night and taught them the five points of Calvinism. I said, you taught them the tulip. I taught them the tulip. The rose too. But anyway, I taught them the tulip. And he said, two things happened at youth camp this week. I said, let me know. He said, number one, we had more kids saved this week in youth camp than we've ever had. All right. Number two, just like always, we could not get the kids to go to bed at night. But this time, they didn't want to just stay up and run around and do the things they normally do. They wanted to stay up late at night and talk about theology. He said, you're right. Uh, Teenagers, if you challenge them, we'll pick up the mantle. And you can. So he said, so here's the deal. We're revamping our entire Sunday evening discipleship for our youth. And for the next year, we're putting in place a systematic theology training curriculum for our youth and for our young adults, our, our singles. I said, awesome. One year later. Hey, Brother Danny. Let me tell you what happened to my church. He said... I had some adults come up to me a few months ago, and they were, they were angry with me. And uh, they said, uh, why are you teaching the youth theology, but you won't teach us? 
And I said, well, Danny Aiken said that y'all were stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart, and I can teach you theology. <laughs> Threw me under the greyhound big time. And so um, he said, guess what I'm doing now? I said, I'm actually afraid to ask anymore. And he says, I am teaching theology to several hundred adults every Wednesday night. He said, our church is being revolutionized. There's a church in Birmingham, Alabama called Hunter Street, whose pastor decided to take seven men and take a year and walk them through a big 1,000-page systematic theology. He got through with that, took those seven, put them out, brought seven more in, took another year, went through that. Long story short, they have now taken on average over the last five years between four and 600 people every year through a systematic theology in his church. He said, here's what's happened. A, a layman came to me recently. This was a couple of years ago. A layman came to me and said, Pastor, since I started studying theology, your preaching has gotten better. <laughs> and he said, I was able to say to that man, no, my preaching hasn't gotten better. Your ability to listen has gotten better. And brothers and sisters, in the day and age in which we live, you can't be a stupid Christian. You've got to be able to think well about the gospel, the implications of the gospel. You've got to be able to explain and understand both what you believe and why you believe. And if you don't read, that's not going to happen. And if you read foolish stuff, it's not going to happen. Yeah, you need to stretch yourself. The next time around, it won't be quite as hard. The next thing you know, you will be able to be a worthy citizen of the city within the city that can indeed explain who they believe, what they believe, and why they believe because they have that transformed mind made possible by daily devoting yourself to the things of God, His Word, and the wonderful truths related to His Word. So there's consecration, there's transformation, and then how does it end? It ends gloriously with you being satisfied in Him. He says there, You are to be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove by putting to the test what is three things. The will of God that is good, the will of God that is acceptable, and the will of God that is perfect. That Chandler said it how many times tonight in that first video? God is what? Good. God was good in giving me a seizure. God was good in giving us someone to help us. God was good in giving me cancer. God was good in giving me the right surgeon at the right place to maximize what they were able to do. In the midst of all of that, God is good. Why? Because Matt believes that's God's will for his life. Was God caught off guard by Matt's brain tumor? No. God's never caught off guard. And guys, nothing ever comes into your life that does not come through the hands of a loving father who allows those things to come into your life for your good. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, even when I cannot trace his hand, I can trust his heart. That's a great statement because I can't always trace his hand, but I can always trust his heart. And that's why his will is good. That's why because it's his will, it is acceptable. And because it is the will of God, it is perfect. One thing he doesn't say, and I bring my teaching time to a close tonight. He doesn't say that God's will is safe, does he? I used to teach a false truth. I didn't mean to. I thought I was saying the right thing. But I used to say to people, there's no safer place in all the world than being in the center of God's will. And intuitively, it didn't feel right. It just didn't feel right. But, you know, it sounds good. There's no better place, no safer place in all the world than being in the center of God's will. And then one day I heard Jerry Rankin, who is the president of our International Mission Board, stand in this pulpit and say, the center of God's will is not always safe, but it is always best. And then it hit me. That's right. There it is. The center of God's will is not always safe, but it is always best. We have a missions program here called the 2 plus 2 program. We have many... Students have gone through it, scattered all over the world. 
year or so ago, we were in Amman, Jordan, and we were meeting with some of our 2 plus 2 students, and Dr. Ashford was there with me, and, and Lauren and Charlotte, and, and we were going around the room, and they were telling us where they were, what was going on, and there was one little girl there, beautiful little girl, very small, blonde-haired, uh, very quiet, mousy kind of girl, and, and Dr. Ashford said, uh, you, you've got to, Rebecca, you've got to tell him your story, and she was very shy. She said, no, 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 tell him where you are, tell him what you're doing, and so she said, well, I... Uh, I serve in, uh, and now that she's not there anymore, I can tell you, I serve in the Sudan. I said, the Sudan, do you serve in Khartoum? And she said, no, I don't serve in the capital. I said, well, where do you serve? And she said, well, I serve out in a place that really doesn't have a name. I said, well, how do you get there? She says, well, I fly from Amman into Khartoum. I fly from Khartoum to another city. And then I take a helicopter from there into basically the relief village area where I am because the roads that are there are basically, you can't travel them. Furthermore, uh, they're so very uh, unsafe. So they fly me in uh, to the area where I serve. He said, tell him the rest. She said, well, I, I, live, I, I, live, in a, I live in a dung hut which is exactly what it is, a hut made out of dung. She said, uh, we have no running water. We have no electricity. And I work with uh, Muslim teenage boys, all of whom have lost their parents in tribal fighting. By the way, she went on to say later, I'm doing my best to minister them. I can't share the gospel with them because uh, a woman can't share the gospel with a man in the Muslim context. So I said, well, I guess the guys share the gospel, don't they? And she responded, there are no guys where I serve. There are three women that are serving there, but there are no guys. Guys, that ought to bother some of you, maybe all of us tonight. I later found out, though, she did not tell me that she also suffers from irritable bowel syndrome. So imagine that. Here you are. You've got irritable bowel syndrome. You live in a dung hut, no running water, no electricity, out in the bush. She graduated. Where are we now? She graduated in December. I saw her a few days beforehand, and I said, well, now that you're graduating, what are you doing? I'm going back. I'm going back. I said, you're going back? She's not married. She didn't have a boyfriend. I'm going back. And I said, like an idiot, why are you going back? And she looked at me like I was an idiot. She said, because God told me to. Okay. <laughs> my bad. My, my real bad. And I was thinking, you know, in her mind, it's already settled. It is going back into perhaps the North Africa, Middle East context, a, a safe place for her to be? No. But she wouldn't hesitate to tell you, but it's the best place for me to go. Because that's where God wants me to be. And she could say tonight, like Cassie Bernal and Jim Elliott and uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer and Paul, who said, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. You give yourself to God in total consecration through the transformation of your mind as you begin to think his thoughts after him by immersing yourself into his word and living out the implications of the gospel. And you will find his. Don't say to me tonight, I just can't find God's will. You give yourself to him in radical consecration and transformation. And I promise you, he'll show you his will. And you will discover, as did Paul, it is good. It is acceptable and it is perfect. Heavenly Father, we love you for making so clear to us in your word who we are in Jesus and then what we're to do as those who are in Jesus. And Lord, it is not out of legalism or fear that we present ourselves in this kind of a way. Paul made it clear this is just the natural, spiritual, rational response to the gospel. The gospel that saved us, the gospel that is continuing to save us, and the gospel that will save us till we are in your presence. And so, Lord, it is my prayer that tonight in my own life, as well as these who are here, that the transformed life that is made possible by a new mind being renewed through your word will result in the consecration of a living sacrifice that is the right response to King Jesus and in the midst of all of that, amazingly, we will discover your will was never hidden. It's always been right there for us to see. And it's good and acceptable and perfect. The problem is we weren't being transformed. The problem is we were not consecrated. But once those two things are in place, 
the discovery of your will naturally follows. And again, it is good. It is acceptable. And it is perfect. Praise your name, King Jesus, for allowing us to be such a citizen in this city, within a city, that is a countercultural lighthouse of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.